2: Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the United States Secret Service was formed in 1865, initially to suppress counterfeit currency. Over time, its mission veered toward protection of political leaders and crime investigation. That service is now a labyrinthine agency with a long trail of management, morale, and performance issues. The United States has a dark history of political assassinations. Efforts to prevent such killings are pressure-filled. In her new book, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, journalist Carol Lenig argues that the once-heralded agency is in dire need of reform and renewed support. The costs of financing the agency rose during the Trump administration, and a historically apolitical force showed partisan and ethical cracks. In recent times, the agency, famed for its dedication to take a bullet, became better known for a tendency to dodge bullets. Lenig interviewed former and current agents and managers in her reporting for the book. One takeaway is that the agency is, quote, "...calling out for help." Carol Lennig is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter at the Washington Post. She is interviewed here by NBC and MSNBC correspondent Jacob Soboroff. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this event on May 23rd. Elliott Bay's Rick Simonson moderated the program. Please note... This recording contains unedited language of an adult nature.
1: We at Elliott Bay Book Company, which is on Duwamish land in the city of Seattle, welcome you and um, we're delighted that you're with us today for this program, which we are excited to be hosting and having Carol Leonik back. Uh, she was in here literally here in seattle early last year as long ago as that seems then for um the book that she and philip rucker had co-written the best-selling um book on a certain recent president called a very stable genius today though is a book um that she has been at work on for years preceding that coverage and that work and that this book just out um and in our hands although it's been going into many hands uh, zero Fail, the Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, um, is drawn from years of research. Um, Carol Leonig has been at the Washington Post, uh, now as a national investigative reporter, for over 20 years. Um, and, is, and in her time there, has been uh, received the Pulitzer Prize three times. And um, certainly has been writing on many current salient um, up up-to-the-moment type of issues, although the, these are the kind that take research and and um, investigation. And this book, um, Zero Fail, um, is being read by all kinds of people, and I, I'm one of those people who um, as a child uh, was very affected and was very aware of John Kennedy's assassination um, and what that meant in terms of, of security for him that was or wasn't there. And I was that same age, you're reading about Abraham Lincoln's assassination, you know, almost 100 years before, and what all that set in motion in terms of, of this um, entity known as the secret service. Um, we were old enough now have lived also through very much attempted assassinations of Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan and so forth. And the book that Carol Leonig has written um, is a, is a great history of, of this agency and what it's been through um, and, and the various ups and downs inside, internally and externally. I mean, the pressure, the, the ways as an agency, it's, um both done his job but also uh, had failings and and near kind of you know tragic failings um as well as the various forms of, of external pressures on it um so you will hear her talk about that today and she is in good company as um, her friend and fellow journalist jacob soboroff who is with us from los angeles and well well carol is with us from washington dc jacob um and is a is a regular correspondent at NBC and MSNBC and he himself is the author of an important book and um even though we in Seattle may he may not be aware of how uh much in Seattle we are aware of and attuned to uh, the issues of the border with Mexico but we are and this book separated inside American tragedy is an important book work on what has happened especially in the last few years um, the policy the title says a lot right there what's happened to families Um, trying to get out of horrible situations, but made entered into a really horrible situation at our border. But today will be about Carolina and it will be about zero fail and it will be about the secret service and um, what they are and aren't doing and where things might go. And again, um, the work she's done draws on the work of a lot of interviews and work besides research with all sorts of people who have been in the secret service and are in the secret service. So it's really reflective of a lot of work and, um, but it, you get the pleasure of reading it and now getting to hear them. With that, for all of us at Elliott Bay again, and, and um, with fond memories of Carol having been in Seattle a year ago okay. with uh, for a very stable genius, we now welcome her back and welcome Jacob back and um, welcome you all to their talking on this. And so please um, take it away, uh, Carol and Jacob. Thank you. Rick, thank you. Um, thanks very much to
0: you and to Karen and to Elliott Bay. Uh, it's a real uh, privilege uh, to be here with, with Carol, my friend. I watched you with Rachel, uh, my colleague Rachel Maddow, on Monday night. And really, I think what was a really um, extraordinary conversation. And she said, I think what, um, what anybody who reads this book will say is not only that this is a, a seminal work about the Secret Service, um, but that it is uh, astonishing. Uh, it is It is terrifying. Um, it is revelatory um, it'll I think it'll change it will change the way anybody um, who reads this this book um, thinks uh, and feels about about the Secret service and more importantly about the safety and the security of, of the leader of the free world um, and the men and now women who you know occupy the highest offices and um, in the land and congratulations, uh, for much of the week, you've been number one on Amazon. And, uh, I think that I'm not going to jinx it, but let's just see where you end up on the New York times bestseller (laughs) list. So, uh, congratulations, Carol. Good
3: to see you. Thank you, Jacob. It's so nice to be here with you. I have warm, um, fond memories of how a friend of ours in common introduced us and you did a wonderful interview probing questions when we wrote, um, Phil Rucker and I wrote a book about, um, the former president, Donald Trump, very stable genius. Uh, but I was blown away by your book, Separated. I mean, you broke so much news there and then you wrote the book. You, you broke the news and then you wrote the book on that really tragic Thank policy.
0: Thank you, Carol. Um, I wanna start with, Rick mentioned you're a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, I went back and, and I looked at um, what the judges had to say about your Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for your reporting on the Secret Service. And I want to I share that with everybody who's with us um, today. In 2015, the judges said uh, they awarded you the honor for your, quote, smart, persistent coverage of the Secret Service, its security lapses, and the ways in which the agency neglected its vital task, the protection of the President of the United States. So to remind everybody, that was under the Obama administration. Um, president Obama was the president at the time. You know, I think I know the answer in reading the book, but- I'm curious to ask you how many um, administrations since President Kennedy, which is the Time Period you Chronicle in zero fail, uh, how many administrations would that apply to that they neglected the vital task of the protection of the president of the United States?
3: I mean, what a great question. I would have to say that things started to really slide in a dangerous way after 9-11. So, you know, that's the George Bush, the, the uh, Barack Obama and Donald Trump administrations. But <laughs> unfortunately, you know, the arc of this book goes all the way back to um, John F. Kennedy's assassination. And that is a seminal moment because in the arc of the Secret Service's story, that tragic event forces but also propels the Secret Service to rebuild itself you know, the director and all of the agents, such a gut punch. They remake that agency. So you have to say that a fourth presidency, a fourth administration, um, they really failed, but they rebuild it. They um, they are vindicated in numerous instances where assassination attempts are foiled. Uh, thank goodness. But the agents begin to fear that a president will be killed on their watch for their, for the chinks and their armor starting around um, in the, in the few years after nine 11.
0: Um, I meant to say, Carol, at the beginning to everybody watching, we're going to take some of your questions at about quarter to the top of the hour. Um, so if you have them put them in the chat and I'll look at them um, around then. Um, wh- wh- I guess, what did you know, Carol, the secret service to me, Obviously, everybody knows that President Kennedy was assassinated. That there were other assassinations of presidents in the history of the United States, but but still, the Secret Service somehow—I don't know—it was through popular culture, movies, whatever—has an almost mythical, um, elite reputation. They can't be touched. Uh, but the, but the picture that you paint, especially in recent years, is of a sophomoric, you know, at times sort of group of people who are are willy nilly. Um, With the fact that they're protecting the President of the United States, the leader of the free world. What did you know about the Secret Service before you started covering them during the Obama administration? Um, And and at that time, you know, almost this book is almost a decade in the making, if you count that reporting, you know, what did you know then, um, before you started to learn all of this?
3: You know, at the Washington Post, I, I, let me start. It's a great question. I I fell into the beat of covering the Secret Service by accident. It, it Nobody covers that in Washington. It's not a serious beat. Um, it's so ancillary to covering the White House, which is the real, you know, the real meat and potatoes, especially of the Washington Post. And I fell into it because an editor said, can you help your colleague, somebody that I really respect and enjoy working with and have partnered with? On other investigations, he had just broken this story about nearly a dozen agents and officers being shipped back unceremoniously from Cartagena in Colombia from the pre- from President Obama's trip, and the reason was they were under investigation for getting hammered while they were on the trip, having a big night out like a Las Vegas bachelor's night, and getting so drunk that they brought prostitutes back to their rooms, their hotels that were being paid for by taxpayers. And this was all in the hours before they were supposed to be preparing the city and, and the hotels for the safety of president Obama's arrival. So I was asked, find out everything you can behind the scenes. What's really going on. My stock in trade at the post was, you know, getting people who aren't usually dying to talk to talk. And I met a lot of agents. I met a lot of agents, friends. I met more agents. I learned everything I possibly could about this crazy night. Um, But I learned something so much more horrifying uh, and it took some time. You know, we call it gathering string, but over those weeks and months, I learned that these agents had a much more scary story to tell than uh, you know, Guys gone wild, drinking to excess. They were very concerned uh, that the agency was running ragged, running on empty, and that there had been numerous security failures and gaffes that exposed huge, huge weaknesses and chinks in the armor. You know, the agents say they'll put themselves between a bullet and the president. They'll take a bullet for the president. Well, they felt more and more like they were just dodging a bullet. Just dumb luck. Um, Their hard work. Plus luck. And they were scared. They had so many good examples. Uh, they completely persuaded me. And that's when I kind of got to see behind the, you know, the cool sunglasses and the earpieces and the elite of the elite reputation and, and discover it was a bit of a paper tiger. And there were, there were a lot of problems, systemic, organizational, morale, leadership, culture, huge, huge problems. Was that the moment for
0: you? Because you tell the story of one agent in particular who who basically has this tranche of knowledge about the scandals of the Secret Service, who, when he's at risk of getting disciplined during the Obama administration, essentially tells his investigators, hey, look, a lot of superiors have got stories equal to or far worse uh, than this. In that moment is that when you sort of learn? is that when you sort of said, Oh, Oh my goodness. I mean, did you learn that in that moment as well? You said, Oh my goodness, this is a much bigger story than one trip with like, uh, a hooker gate as it was known in the press at the time.
3: Yeah. I'm going to dance around this a little bit. Cause it's careful. Um, you know, about sourcing with sure. confidential sourcing, but you hit on a really important <sighs> moment, Jacob, the agent, uh, here is one of the very senior supervisors on the Kataheina trip who is about to lose his job and is told basically, you know, we're going to need you to resign. And if you don't, we're going to fire you. I'm paraphrasing. That is all because the director is trying to protect his job. This is the most humiliating thing that's ever happened to the secret service. And they want to put it in a box and say goodbye. This never happened before. There's never been any gambling in the casinos. This is a one-off we're taking care of it. But one agent named Greg Stokes says, Oh, wait a sec. This is not a one-off. This has happened many times before. And he begins to warn them, like, you're not taking me down. Uh, I know a lot of things that are much worse that you have either participated in or let slide. And you can't use a different penalty system now because you, the director, are in hot water and Congress is demanding, you know, an investigation and testimony and it's high profile. You can't, you can't let me be um, the scapegoat for all these things. And because of him, a lot of other people in the agency learn those sort of, that sort of dirty laundry and tell me, and the dirty laundry is not just cultural. It's not just guys that have had sex on the road and a wheels up rings off kind of culture where they've got a wife and kids at home, but, you know, a girl in every port on an international trip with the president. Um, It's also serious security failures that have been covered up. And then I begin to unravel those and report them in the paper. The
0: Secret Service, I think it's it's a badge of honor for you. It's uh, probably something they didn't want to have to do, but they've responded officially to the book. Um, They put out a statement, uh, which... At NBC News internally, it was sent around to all of us in, the, in the, the report on politics. And I want to read a little bit of that for the people who are with us today. Uh, this is attributable to Secret Service Director James M. Murray, uh, who, who is now the Secret Service Director, but he was a holdover as well, correct me if I'm wrong, from, the, from President right. Trump. Yes. He, so he said, um, Secret Service personnel... So responding to some of the things that you and I are talking about, even more that are in the book, everybody get it, read it, find them all fall fall out on your own. Uh, He said the secret service personnel are dedicated professionals who uphold our motto, worthy of trust and confidence, sacrificing of themselves to carry out our mission. The American people can rest assured that the U S secret service is an apolitical and nonpartisan agency. There is no tolerance for conduct that cast doubt on the unwavering commitment to execute uh, these missions. And, you know, I read this while reading your book, and he doesn't address, you know, a single or a specific incident uh, that comes up in the book, uh, not one. And there was also an attached statement from the spokesperson for the Secret Service. I'm not even going to read that. Um, but But nothing, no specifics. As a reporter, what does it say to you? What was your reaction to the statement?
3: Well, um, if you you got him, show him, right? If he has a complaint about any of the reporting in the book, uh, you know, I would hope that I would hear it. Of course, I did fact check this book with the Secret Service. Every single person who's named in it um, was alerted about what was going, what I planned to report. And the agency um, was also made aware so that they could speak on current agents' behalf. Agents are not um, permitted to talk to me without authorization. They can lose their job for that. Um, but if you have a complaint about any of the factual material, then I think it's incumbent on you to tell me and not in the fact checking and not today and not tomorrow, uh, not yesterday. Has the secret service challenged any of this uh, reporting? I'd also say that a lot of director Murray's um, statement is geared at the idea that they are a political. And my book reports how during his time as director under President Trump, he was named director by the president. um, You know, there were a lot of concerns that Secret Service agents, particularly presidential detail leaders and supervisors at the top level of headquarters had become politicized, had become a political arm of President Trump's forgive me, catching my throat, um, effort to get reelected, that they have been deployed in a, as a political tool. And um, I think that Director Murray takes some umbrage at that, um, but these things did happen on his watch.
0: And for the record, just underscore didn't deny or confirm anything then nor now, right? I mean, th- this is, they basically, is it fair to say they've, they've just they've kept silent and why?
3: Um, internally, the secret service issued a more private message to their staff saying, you know, we're really proud of all of you and don't let this book get you down. Um, and emphasize that sometimes they can't comment because of the very sec- secretive nature of their work. But again, if you have a dispute with anything, you can say that it doesn't require, um, breaching any classified program. Um, And I want to stress something. I'm so glad you read the statement because I think it's really fair and important to share that. I'm a huge fan of so many secret service agents and officers.
2: You make that clear in the book too.
3: I, I literally feel like I'm channeling them. Um, I'm ringing an alarm bell for them. They took risks. Some of them lost their jobs because they spoke to me. Hmm. Uh, They wanted so much for this agency to get stronger to get the attention it needed to get the leadership it needed to get the 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 technology upgrade to the 21st century that they deserve so they can deliver on the zero fail mission you know you can't make a mistake they don't want to and they're sort of calling out for help um and and that's what i hope the book does
0: the i think what's um Couple things are getting the most attention. I think it's the politicization of the Secret Service, particularly um, under President Trump, Um, and again, sort of the debaucherous behavior of agents on on uh, past trips. Even during, uh, you know, when President Kennedy was assassinated, there's that amazing story that you tell about how they went out um, drinking at two clubs, um, actually at two places the night um, before he was killed. Um, But there was a story that really uh, stuck out to me. Of course, everybody remembers um, we're coming up, you know, I should say on the one year anniversary of the killing of George, um, Floyd. And in the wake of his death, obviously last summer, there were protests all across the country, including at the white house, including in Lafayette park. And there was that very famous, um, episode incident, you know, choreographed by the white house, um, also, um, Not just the Secret Service, Secret Service, but also the military and the Park Police, where the president kind of stormed across Lafayette Park and he walks out to the church and he holds up not zero fail but the Bible and he's standing, you know, outside. There you go, exactly (laughs) upside down. It's a sign of distress, as I learned in your book, uh, when the flag is upside down. Um, And around that moment, I want to make sure I get this right. Around that moment. Um, something happened that I had not heard of um, before when that incident was described. I want to read it. It's on page, I wrote it on page 479. So let me just go to it. Um, I was blown away, uh, blown away um, when I read this paragraph. So this is in response to the, that show of force that you write. Um, that use of overwhelming force was roiling the staff of the secret service uh, with black officers and agents demanding that their supervisors answer some hard questions. Part of their anger stemmed from a suggestion by a white officer, Joe Vidala, uh, who had proposed that the agency use fire hoses in the future, fire hoses, to keep protesters away from the mansion and reduce the risk of breach. Quote, some said it was old school, but old school works, wrote Vidala, who had received awards for his life-saving reactions on the job a flood of black employees pelted the officer on the forum, insisting that his words were indicative of a secret service aligned with the worst instincts of Donald Trump. And then my words, not to mention the racist legacy of using fire hoses on um, peaceful protesters. Um, As somebody who covers the border, this reminded me immediately actually of when ProPublica uncovered that racist border patrol group on Facebook, that it was racist. It was xenophobic. Um, it was sexist. It showed all kinds of cultural um, issues in that agency. In your book, this is not the only example of, of racism amongst the ranks of the Secret Service. Um, it hasn't, I mean, I, I just haven't heard it talk. I'm, I'm sure in your tour you've talked about it, but racism explicitly. How how pervasive is racism in the ranks of the U.S. Secret Service? Um, how does, you know, is this incident an isolated incident um, or did you find more like this in your,
3: in your reporting over the history of the secret service uh, i'm really glad you focus on this and it, it is explosive when it happens when this officer makes this recommendation of using fire hoses they were overwhelmed when those protesters arrived and and it was sort of 1960s anti-war protest level or civil rights well it is a civil rights you know, complaint, but I mean, the 1960s civil rights protests, that's what it felt like to them and they weren't prepared for it. They did not. And they were worried that those protesters, if any of them tried to simultaneously jump the fence, there was no way they were going to stop them. Um, and they were overrunning the temporary barricades. So it was a fearful time, but the fire hose recommendation uh, enraged Black officers. And I would say that, that there have been many terrible racist episodes in the Secret Service. In a training facility, um, officers found a noose that had been hung, which they believed was supposed to be a threat to a Black supervisor who was arriving at the training center. Um, The Secret Service uh, blackballed a group of agents who filed a racial, racial discrimination lawsuit in the 1990s. Those people were basically blocked from getting Any good assignments? People refused to ride with them, refused to work with them, just because they they wanted, you know, to be treated equally. Many of the people who, the agents who filed that lawsuit, and I've looked at the records uh, in discovery in federal court. Many of them had been bypassed for promotion multiple times by white agents that they had trained and white agents who performed lower than they did on the performance scale rating that's used for promotions. So they were, you know, not just gobsmacked, but getting ticked off. Um, Ultimately that suit was settled. The secret service was so angry about that lawsuit that the director publicly criticized the agents who filed it. And um, the next several directors resisted settling it, arguing that they were never going to pay those people. Finally, under President Obama, Secretary Jay Johnson did, uh, ultimately repaying them back wages for what they would have received for promotions that he deemed they deserved decades earlier.
0: What ultimately happened to this agent who made this suggestion uh, in the wake of the Lafayette Park um, episode?
3: You know, that's so indicative of the Secret Service, which is if you have a problem that looks bad, um, try to cover it up. Um, The, the service decided to scrub this discussion uh, in the, in their internet. Yeah. They, uh, luckily someone gave it to me before it was scrubbed, um, gave me screenshots and copies, but the service decided that because it caused a fuss, they just removed it and weren't going to talk about it. But officers brought and agents brought it up in a town hall with the director after the George Floyd, um, Protests and in that town hall said, you know, we need to talk about this. Black officers and agents, you know, really after that moment, the clearing of, of peaceful protesters forcibly cleared with rubber bullets, with pepper gas, with chemical canisters, with um, a shove of a um, a bat or a shove of a shield into flashbang grenades. Hand. If I if I remember correctly. I I can't confirm that, but it's possible when, you know, the Secret Service is trained very, very well to understand what the rights of protesters are and First Amendment rights under the Constitution. So here they are in this town hall asking their director, so what happened to our training about respecting First Amendment rights? Um, They also ask the director whether or not they will be allowed to take a knee in solidarity with the protesters because they don't want to suggest that there's some wall of blue and that they support what Derek Chauvin has done to George Floyd. The director of the Secret Service, Jim Murray, tells them that he wants to respect their their wishes to communicate this to protesters, but it's too complicated for them to do this and remain apolitical in this setting. But it, it's a real, it roils the service pretty badly when they are used in this way by Donald Trump.
0: Hey, the man at the center of it, you mentioned Donald Trump. Uh, I think one of the most indelible images of his presidency, and there are many, is when he took the joyride around Walter Reed in his, in, in his suburban, his armored suburban, um, with those secret service agents who are fully suited up in basically hazmat gear, because he's in the he wanted to go out and show his strength, despite the fact that he had COVID, a um, really bad COVID. Uh, he's wearing a mask. They're wearing the, the the white suits. You mentioned earlier that the that um, the agents who are sworn to protect the president, part of that, and I don't know if it's part of the oath or it's just part of sort of informally at the Secret Service, they will take a bullet for the president. It's private Secret Service in a helicopter again outside my house. Um, uh, they they will take a bullet for the president of the United States. But in the book, you write about how I think 300 Secret Service agents and officers ultimately contracted COVID um, protecting Donald Trump at his rallies, which didn't need to take place, um, at his campaign events where he encouraged his staff not to wear masks. Um, Obviously, these were dangerous, uh, dangerous outings that didn't need to happen. Did the agents you spoke with feel the same way about contracting a virus for the president as they did about taking the bullet for the president?
3: Such a good question. Um, and no, they were um, pretty riled about this as well. At least the ones that I spoke to, I'm sure there are many agents and officers who felt that it is their duty to do whatever the, the commander in chief needs to do. And theirs is not to reason why. But many agents and officers I spoke to were livid because taking a bullet for the president is your job, what you signed up for when he is going to do his official duties. He's going to speak uh, at public rallies. He's going to speak to the nation in the Rose Garden from time to time. He's going to go to public events, maybe a school, maybe a park, maybe, uh, you know, maybe Give the State of the Union address at the uh, Capitol, now not as safe as we once thought. Um, but contracting COVID and more importantly for these people, bringing COVID home to their families uh, was a bridge too far because it was unnecessary. It, is, it was not necessary for President Trump to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, not wear a mask and go to an indoor rally. He had choices. He has a pretty big platform, you know, at the time, Twitter, but also anything he says is almost automatically broadcast nationally on television. So he had an opportunity to speak to voters. And many people during COVID chose to speak to voters in that sort of safe way. But but Donald Trump did not. And officers and agents also uh, told me that they were discouraged by the presidential detail from wearing masks. It was the policy of the secret service that they should wear them and follow the CDC guidelines, but they actually didn't because the presidential detail agent said the president doesn't like to see that. Um, you know, imagine being told that you have to do something that could get you sick and that is invisible and could actually sicken your family. As soon as you get home, many agents and officers had to stay in hotels And were left behind um, from a trip if they tested positive at the trip. And they just had to stay there by themselves um, rather than be flown home immediately. There were some changes to that policy over time. But can you imagine, like, you get COVID and we're going to leave you at this hotel. We'll see you soon. So uh,
0: As if it was was there. I mean, honestly, to me, that sounds like they're being disciplined for, it's the same discipline. I mean, they're not being flown home, but they're being left out just as if they were to have committed some kind of misconduct as you, you know, write another parts of the book.
3: Yeah. It just was, it was just a risk that was um, one they could have easily avoided had the president made a different choice.
0: Um, I was, I can't remember if I ever told you this, but I was in a previous life, I was a, um, an advanced guy to mayor Bloomberg when I, before I was a journalist um, in New York when I was in college. And for the, for the people that are um, joining us, an advanced person is, like the civilian equivalent of the secret service. Um, We're not tough. We're not, you know, law enforcement, but you go out ahead. I'm talking about the advanced secret service agents. You go out ahead and you work hand in hand with the law enforcement to um, make sure that the events um, go smoothly. And um, mayor Bloomberg um, uh, very famously uh, said, uh, says to everybody, but said to me on my first day um, as an advanced guy, excuse my language, um jake nice to meet you don't fuck it up and you know the the at first i was like why does he say that but the truth is it is a it is a critically important job um in a similar but different way than the law enforcement folks that you accompany um you can make or break um a trip uh in the case of 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 jerry bruno who was the advanced guy on um president kennedy's trip um he there's a, a famous book called The Advanced Man, where he lives with regret, lived with regret, um, you know, for his entire life about what happened, even though it was the Secret Service who was protecting him. Anyway, there was a there was a quote in the book um, that reminded me of, of what Mayor Bloomberg said to me. And I want to just I want to read it this. Um, in there was, in 2011, there was an assassination attempt on President Obama, where a, a sh- basically a sharpshooter um, sat hundreds of yards away from the White House, but I think landed, what, seven rounds on the White House itself, including windows, windowsills, right. re- on the residence. Um, and a senior Obama advisor said that um, Mark Sullivan, the director of the Secret Service, was told, quote-unquote, this was a fuck-up. Uh, President Obama's tenure, um, and, and I, re- I mention this again because the reason I was told don't fuck it up, the reason when somebody in the white house says to a secret service agent or secret service director, this was a fuck up. It's the, it's the title of the book. You have, it's zero fail. You have no margin for error, whether you're an advanced staffer who can embarrass the president or the mayor of New York in my case, or a secret service agent who literally holds the life of this so-called principal in your hands. um, The Obama tenure, at least in my reading seemed to be really an era of profound (laughs) chaos um, I thought you were
3: going to say
0: profound fuck-ups. <laughs> yes, there were a lot of profound fuck-ups. A shit show, I think it was described in the book. <laughs> by, maybe by Michelle Obama, if I, if I remember. Um, am I reading that correctly? Was, it, was there any era that was more chaotic? There were more fuck-ups than the Obama era? At a time, by the way, when the president probably was under more threat than anybody since maybe President, president Kennedy.
3: You know, you totally summarized it correctly. And also, I had no idea you were an advanced staffer. Hats off to you. I think that is a very stressful job. And actually, constant fighting between the White House Advance and the Secret Service, yeah, right? Exactly. The White House Advance wants a beautiful background, no complications, gorgeous, everything the way it is should be for television. And the Secret Service agents are like, that's not safe. We can't right. do that. So lots of fights. And yeah, somebody is going to get blamed. But um I, I titled the Obama years like the years that the wheels fell off the bus yes. because um, so, so serial were the misconduct events, so serial were the security gaffes and failures that President Obama actually has a really, um, like almost like a tongue lashing, a dramatic scolding of the director. And let me take you there. The Secret Service director at that time is Julie Pearson. She has gotten the job after Mark Sullivan has exited several months after the whole Cartagena mess. She's the first woman director in history. And she has some people gunning for her who are mad that she got the job. Uh, really angry, wish wish she didn't. And she's also trying to change the culture problems in the Secret Service. She's starting to punish people when they get into trouble, like actually consistently punish people for doing things like, getting caught drunk, um, passing out in, on trips, blah, 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 blah. So she um, has just dealt with one of these misconduct episodes. And she's on her, she's told the Secret Service supervisors, look, tell all your people no more getting hammered on presidential trips. Tell them it's serious. We're not fooling around send out the word. And if you can't get this together, I'm going to start changing leadership. You know, I'm going to start changing sort of the the top level managers. So president Obama is heading on his way to the Hague in the Netherlands. And, um, the supervisor that night for the advanced team of secret service agents is at a bar with them at restaurant and bar. And he is saying, okay, guys, I'm going back to the hotel. We've had dinner, have one more Heineken and then go home. The director's watching us. That's the right. president's watching us. Don't fuck it up. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to use layer Bloomberg all the time. So <laughs> what happens, but a agent And two more buddies get hammered. They get so, so inebriated that one of them passes out in the lobby of the hotel where the president is flying to and is going to be staying within hours. Marines find the passed out agent, middle of the night, try to carry him back to his room. Looks like he tried to get into his room, but failed and fell down. So... Director Pearson's on Air Force One with the president coming across the ocean and is finding this out. And she's like, great. (laughs) So she lands. The first thing she's got to do is hand out the punishments and start getting a debriefing about what's happened. She ships those three agents back home, hoping that the newspapers don't find out about it. The next day, she's in Brussels and she's got to tell the president what happened in case it comes out. They sit in a hotel room and she tells him and he says, OK, Julie, here's the problem. Let me go through the list with you of all the things that have gone wrong while I've been president. Let me remind you of the shooting at my house while my children were home that you didn't tell ta- that a previous director didn't tell me about. Let me tell you about the time my wife's. uh hotel room, an intruder got up to the the same floor because there weren't enough agents to march, you know, walk off the entrances. He just goes through the list and it's kind of savage because it's a long list. and It's not all her responsibility. She says, I know I'm working on it. She leaves. She calls an internal investigator and she says to him, I am one DUI away from get from losing my job because one more screw up on the, I mean, again, that's her quote. Um, But my paraphrase is if there's one more incident, uh, President Obama's not having it. And then of course, famously another incident happens and she does lose her job.
0: It is extraordinary. I mean, to think about, part of me, you know, part of me feels bad for her in that moment, you know, um, because she's almost in this historic role, you know, herself. And these things just keep happening, and it made me it made me wonder: is, is anybody capable um, of reforming this agency um, when the stress is so high, when money is constantly, as you document, um, an issue, when man and woman power um, it always seems uh, in short supply? Is it possible that you have a scandal free Uh, secret
3: service? You know, the service, I I love the empathetic way you put that. And it's making me think deeply about uh, the challenge that she faced. Not only was the agency, as she saw it, bankrupt when she got in, there wasn't enough money to keep the, keep all the lights on. Um, She tells a budget officer that she is the first woman and she comes into the job of being director because two other guys basically like shot each other in a, firing round for the job and they're angry that she got it. So they're rooting against her and they're hoping for her to fail. Um, And on top of that, she's dealing with an agency that has an enormous expanding, constantly expanding plate of responsibilities and shrinking and shrinking capabilities. When she is director, the secret service is down roughly uh, if I remember correctly, 480 positions, 68 supervisors. Those jobs are not filled because the service didn't have enough money to promote people into those jobs. They didn't have enough money for the relocation expenses. So they haven't gotten those, those supervisors in the position to lead other people. She, when she comes in, the service has a, a just a boatload of technological challenges where a bunch of alarms and fencer, fences and, Um, cameras and radio communications are on the fritz and they haven't had enough money to replace or fix them. And in terms of mission, I just want to stress for those of you who are watching and aren't familiar with this, we all think of the president as the number one job of the service. And that's true. Making sure he's alive in the morning and alive at night, that's the job. Except there's 70 million other jobs. There's cyber hacking and financial crimes and counterfeit stuff. There's all these investigations that they still do. There's training on school safety. There are 42 other people, at least during the Trump administration, that they're responsible for protecting. President's grandchildren, vice president's now stepchildren, cabinet members, you know, at that time, Secretary Mnuchin who had no threats against his life, but he has a full detail 24 seven. Then we tell the Secret Service they're responsible as a result of the 1990s and the threats of terror. They're responsible for protecting huge public gatherings that are likely going to be the target of terror, Super Bowls, Olympics. So, you know, as, as a very senior Department of Homeland Security official told me, they can't do this job. Somebody's got to give them an appropriate mission define that mission and then give them the tools to accomplish it. Cause they cannot to quote them. They cannot do it now. Yeah, exactly.
0: You just reminded me of the last line of the book, which is uh, you know, these people are patriots. We're letting them down and we're leaving the country at risk. Um, It should haunt us all. You right. I know I got to go to questions from people who are um, with us, but I just wanted to ask um, quickly. I've heard you talk about it before, but is president Biden safe?
3: I can tell you what agents and officers have told me, which is the service has a lot of chinks in its armor and it's a matter of time before there's a catastrophe. You can't predict which president might be in trouble or which chink in the armor is going to fall at at a particular time, but they're worried that if we don't do something soon, they're not safe. They're ultimately not safe. Neither he nor Kamala Harris.
0: Um. Has the White House I mean, we've heard from the Secret Service, has the White House um, in any way publicly or otherwise which you probably wouldn't tell us here. I mean what do they have to say about this? this is, it's terrifying, I'm sure, especially for new tenants, I know he's returning, but for new tenants of the White House and the Oval Office what a what a what a freaky book to read a hundred and something days into your administration?
3: They've not said anything publicly. But I have heard through back channels that there are a number of sort of what I'd call secret service advocates who have been reaching out to the White House and um, trying to persuade them that, you know, this is, the, this is the wake up call and let's do something now, let's not wait. Um, and we all know, and, and, and my book reports on this as well, that the Biden transition team before he arrived, they were very concerned sure. about the politicization um, they might not have known how bad it was until this book came out.
0: Including MAGA, MAGA hats on the desks of, of certain Trump agents. And actually, sort of most astonishing, um, a senior, a senior um, Secret Service official going to the Trump campaign and then being placed back into the Secret Service ahead of President Biden becoming president. Um, let me get some questions in. This is from another Carol, Carol Barnes, who says, what is your take on what I think had been and continue to be outrageous charges, meaning financial, uh, to the Secret Service by the former guy. And just before you answer, I remember one one part in the book you talk about, I think, in the course of a month, uh, President Trump racked up, you know, over $10 million alone at the beginnings of administration. It was like a huge chunk of what Obama had spent over the course of his entire presidency
3: on his personal Uh, Good memory. Good memory, Jacob. Yeah, he was in his first. um, That's one of the numbers. The other one is that he was spending and traveling at a rate about 12 times what Obama did, which is just ironic, because when (laughs) Donald Trump was campaigning, he kept insisting that Obama was like wasting time golfing. And, you know, candidate Trump's claim at that time was, I'll be too busy working for you. I just won't leave the White House. Well, lo and behold, (laughs) You know, day two on the job, he's like at Mar-a-Lago every other weekend relaxing and some meetings and golfing at his clubs where taxpayers paid for that. And to Carol's question, forgive me for lapsing on that, what was so unusual about Donald Trump's presidency in terms of its interaction with the Secret Service was that when he took this small city, which every president does, on his travels... He was going to his own clubs where all of the expenses accrued to his bottom line, right. his business profited or benefited. We don't know what the gross or net was, but it they were cha-chinging the cash register every time he traveled to his clubs. That just is really unusual. Um, and then, you know, he charged the rate he chose to charge and you know it's not the days in it's mar-a-lago so it's going to be a lot more also charged for space at mar-a-lago also pricier per square foot than other places probably the biggest financial gut gut punch though was something under his his and his and the first lady's control which was in 2017 when melania trump decided to stay at trump tower This was a challenge like no other for the secret service, because they usually spend about $800,000 a year, at least in those dollars at that time, protecting a president's additional residence. So like for Obama, it was in Chicago, you know, for Bush, it was in Crawford, like secret service, makes sure that that house is protected kind of a house sitter, if you will, but but for the most important person in the world. Um, But for President Trump, he designated it as Trump Tower, so Melania could stay there. It cost $30 million in the first year. So that choice of hers uh, ate up like the equivalent of half of the Secret Service's travel budget. So they needed an emergency infusion of funds to cover her decision to stay there with Barron. She said it was because she wanted him to finish school. My colleague, Mary Jordan, uh, revealed in her reporting that it was because a bargaining chip to negotiate a better um, nuptial arrangement with her husband that would benefit baron uh in terms of his placement in trump org uh whenever donald trump stepped down
0: can i ask you a question about this is there sorry to interrupt you but is there an equivalent of a general counsel's office in the secret service who you know for instance in my reporting on the border, DHS has a general counsel who might say you can't do that because that'll be violative of this, that, or the other law. And I mean, President Trump, it was no secret that people thought he was violating the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution by profiting off of the presidency and he was charging his own Secret Service. Was there was there ever any internal debate or somebody at the Secret Service who said, you know, maybe maybe we should at least try to get a better deal? Um, <laughs> at these properties or something like that, because this isn't really kosher.
3: There appears to have been no, um, I should say, I don't know of any resistance that the Secret Service made to his choices and his spending. and his President property. Biden
0: also, importantly, also charged Secret Service rent at his properties, too, we should say. That's
3: true. He did. He charged them um, for a gatehouse. And as I remember, it was $2,000 a month.
0: So, yeah. So no internal resistance. Let me let me uh, let me get in another um, question. This is from Eliza Smith, who says she is a former law enforcement officer. And she says, as a former law enforcement officer, the shame the Secret Service and many law enforcement agencies have caused our profession is embarrassing uh, and in my ethics, unacceptable. I took an oath very seriously. Do you believe the oath will ever mean anything to Secret Service agents again?
3: I think there are so many. I, I hope this is heartening to you. There are so many Secret Service officers and agents who take that oath seriously. And they took it so seriously that they risked a professional you know, wilderness um, to try to rebuild their agency, even when their leadership wasn't listening to them. And they do believe in the oath to the Constitution rather than the oath to the man. Um, famously, Chief of Staff John Kelly used to basically give pep talks to people, reminding them, we have an oath. We swear an oath to the constitution, not to Donald Trump and not to a political party. And there are many people in the secret service who feel that way. Same with, with president Obama. We're not swearing an oath to president Obama as the service loves to say, um, you know, the people elect them, we protect them. And I think with the right leadership and with somebody paying attention to this problem, uh, the service is going to return to that noble mantra of being a political and of having a leadership that has its back. You know, what's the number one thing you need in a general, you need a general that supports his troops um, to give them the tools they need to do their job. Hi <laughs> tools. They need to do their job and then also reins them in when they do the wrong thing.
0: I'm just bringing a guest in to say hello. This is no, everybody. Sorry to interrupt Carol. This is okay. Noah. So, off. We're, no, we were at work, but so I'm going to be done in 10 I minutes. I
1: can't find any scissors and I need scissors. Okay, well,
0: I'll help you find them in a few minutes. But
1: I need scissors for my mobile. Are there any gold scissors anywhere? I
0: don't know. Hold on. I'm going to ask Carol one more question, okay?
2: Okay.
0: So, Carol, sorry. No um, problem. Here's, I understand. Here is, you see my face quickly getting redder. Um, bye, Noah. Bye, Noah, Carol says. Um, here's another one. This one was from Joe Figg. This was a similar question that I had. Um, is money always the answer is security spending at the white house responsibility of the secret service or the GSA?
3: So usually the secret service makes the requests that have to do with security, um, protocols, security programs. So it's the secret service that basically says, we need these kinds of alarms on the fence, or we need, you know, this many cameras, which the service finally got on the perimeter after the shooting that they didn't discover um, until four days later when a White House usher and cleaning staff discovered the broken windows where the bullets had struck. So the Secret Service usually makes those requests. There are a few things that have to do with the, the Pentagon, the White House military office that will do handle a few super, super classified issues. They're in charge of the bunker, the underground bunker underneath the East Wing of the White House and its upgrades have been paid for by the Pentagon. All of it, ultimately, taxpayers are paying for and the Secret Service has been, you know, shortchanged sometimes by presidents, by White Houses, budget offices, and sometimes hasn't been brave enough to ask for the money because it doesn't want to admit how, how weak it is
0: including president Trump, right? If I'm not mistaken, who cut the budget or, or what would wh- remind me of the number, but it was basically a guy who talked tough about law enforcement didn't really give them the money they were
3: asking for. No, he gave so much money to the other two agencies, right? Border patrol, border patrol. Um, and so forgive me, I want to say CBP and then the immigration office. So to I go see after- that. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yes. And those are both huge agencies within the Department of Homeland Security. Secret Service is a tiny agency in, in that department and got a fraction of a 1% increase, not enough to keep up with uh, you know, the cost of living and definitely not enough to catch up with how behind they already were.
0: Um, I think I have time for a couple more questions. So this one's from an anonymous attendee. This is, uh, the question says, in terms of mission, why do you think Julia Pearson, the prior director that we had talked about uh, during the Obama administration, failed in her position. Could it be because a male-dominated institution didn't want to be managed or led by a smart woman? And actually, that that reminds me of the story that what President Obama said to her, if I'm not mistaken. Didn't he say, get more women?
3: Yes, he did. Good memory. He's like, you know what the Secret Service needs is more women. She's like, I'm working on it. Um, I absolutely, based on the reporting that I did, feel that she... Um, was having knives stuck in her back without her knowing it constantly by male uh, competitors, other male supervisors. I actually think I was the beneficiary of leaks from some of those individuals who were indirectly passing information. Now the information was good, meaning it was factually true, but the motive was um, to embarrass her. And, and, you know, these were real problems, but she literally the first day on the job goes in and puts the White House on notice. I don't have the things I need to do this job. Help me out. Um, and they don't give her what she really, really needs. And yeah, being a woman in that agency, I mean, given how they, their, their record on race, their record on, um, you know, leaning so conservative as to you know, enable some domestic extremists to stay inside that agency, Um, its record on women is is not a lot better.
0: Uh, And one final question. This is from um, Sharice Tasker, who says, um, for those prospective Secret Service agents in the audience, um, what is the typical educational slash prior employment route for prospective agents?
3: it used to be uh especially in the Kennedy and Johnson era but also going forward probably to Nixon it used to be somebody who had been in the military before uh it was coming back from a tour of duty of some sort and increasingly now it's someone who has been in a local law enforcement agency um your your town police your county sheriff maybe state highway patrol um but you know, that's one of the problems with the service, which Director Pearson really worked hard on um, and and didn't have as, you know, wasn't able to make as much progress probably as she wanted. But the service needs expertise in areas beyond policing. You know, it needs expertise in finance, it needs expertise in cyber, it needs expertise in a host of classified security programs. And being a Police officer isn't always the only skill set needed, but that is the traditional route to the agency now.
0: There's a I'm not going to spoil every story in the book, but there's a great story about how they did cast a wider net I think 35,000 people. They were only able to take in 18 or something like that of the people who showed up kind of from the general public. Um, I could go on and on all day. I love this book. Um, I love the author Zero Fail. The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Uh, if you haven't bought it yet, please buy it right now. Uh, buy it from Elliott Bay. Um, buy a couple copies from Elliott Bay. Buy one for a friend. Um, so Carol, thank you to you. And uh, Rick, I'm gonna get Noah's scissors after I sign off, but um, Rick, thank you to you and to everybody who came well, today.
1: Thank you so much, Jacob. And we were gonna r- remind you about the scissors. Thank you for your patience with this. And thank you both.
3: Jacob, can I just say thank you? I enjoyed seeing Noah, but I especially enjoyed your questions. You didn't thank spoil you. anything.
1: Thank I'm you, sorry. Carol. Good. No, I, I was going to ask you, Carol, if you had anything else to say, but um, and if you do beyond that, please do. Um, but thank you both. And um, Jacob's done a great job of drawing Carol out. There's, the stories in here um, are um, all over the place, but, but in terms of where they where they fall, but but a lot of them are, i would say alarming and uh because it speaks to um ethic you know ethics, ethicals of profession and people who do care and yet and yet what the erosion and the corrosion of of things and and the needing to, to it's like the infrastructure needed to really rebuild and re re-aim and actually also um make right for the for the times we're in uh, politically i mean I, some non-political agency, but, but the work that they need to do is, as you both drawn out uh, in this and as Jacob did greatly um, emphatically do, uh, this is a book to read and uh, we thank you all very much for joining us. And um, I believe Carol will have more work Carol, uh down the road too. We've been hearing hints of another of a sequel to a very stable genius that um, she and Philip Rucker did it's I, happening.
0: You got it on the on, from a trusted source in me. It's,
1: it's, it's, <laughs> it's you know, you've got you've got these uh these disclosures happening right in front of our ears. So um we'll hopefully get to see Carol again with that. And um, Jacob, we wish you well and separated uh, has been out and I guess it'll be coming payback soon. So we, there's that part of the book's life. And um indeed.
3: I, I will say one thing, Rick, since you offered me the chance. Um I Really, I'm so glad that independent bookstores are doing this work. In mm. in COVID, they they kept on soldiering forward. And when you're an author and you've spent five years uh, researching and reporting a book, it's so lovely to know that independent bookstores are like the hearts of their community, and they and they mm. they keep chugging out our our work, which we hope will be illuminating. What I enjoyed about this experience um was it was like being on a roller coaster but a roller coaster over history you know from kennedy to trump just buck just buckle up (laughs) And, and um and thank you very very much rick and elliot bay and karen I'm so lucky Jacob agreed to mess up his Sunday and read my book which is really long but I promise you there's some good stuff. <laughs> it's so good. I also bought the audiobook
0: just for everybody here. I don't know if you could buy it at Elliott Bay, buy the book at Elliot Bay, buy the audiobook online. It's a it's a full 360 experience.
1: You've got them all. And thank you also for those last good words about bookstores you've got your neighborhood one there politics and Pro- pros our friends in washington and um yes this as as challenging as these occasions are the wish to all be in the same room this does let people from all over the place and we and the people with us today are all over the place geographically so that's also been part of it it lets us all um in in these distance times still be have some sense of being together so hopefully soon in the real in the real meeting and greeting and, and and um you can have these conversations in person with with everyone carol and uh and Jacob when you get out again too, so continued good work um and again, the work you're doing you both are doing as journalists is so vital um we love the books but but the the daily work that goes on with the journalism is is vital to um our being here as a as a place as a country that is trying to do what it's trying to do in the right ways so thank you both again. thank you all thank take care enjoy your rest of your Sunday and be safe. thanks everybody.
2: The L.A. Bay Book Company presented this conversation with Carol Lennig on May 23rd. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.